You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, on the Westwood One Podcast Network. It is finally Friday, May 25th, and you know what that means. It is Foreign Policy Friday with Jordan Shackdell. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? Doing great, Dan. Uh, not Dan, Daniel. <laughs> well, you know, how everyone you calls me Dan. Come on, you know. Uh, it, it's funny. I even start doing it myself now. Um, but this is serious stuff as we head into the weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend. Very appropriate to discuss national security because ultimately it's our troops that are the force behind defending it. Um, ultimately, we got to get it right so that their blood is never wasted. Um, as, as solemn as the sacrifice is to die for your country, you know, we got to make sure they're at least dying for our country, not for other interests. We got to put America first. And, you know, I've been, I've been pretty down this week on a lot of domestic policy, a lot of things related to the state of the conservative movement. And if we're looking to really champion something that, wow, you know, we're finally doing something right. We're finally doing something that's common sense. We're finally seeing change we can believe in. I think when it comes to North Korea, I think that this is one area, even before John Bolton was brought on, um, I was brought on uh, WBAL Baltimore, my local station, to give an analysis of the first 100 days of the administration a year ago. And as you know, I was not, I was pretty down on the administration then based on the personnel, things they were doing. Um, but at, even then, I said the best thing I'm seeing coming out of there is the change in posture on North Korea. And the change in posture is everything. Based on what happened this week, are we seeing possibly a Reagan moment? A Reagan moment like in Reykjavik where rather than us being schleppers for the other side of negotiations, we're always giving and groveling and they're always demanding. Has he turned the tables? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I, I wrote about this yesterday in Conservative Review that the president um, – you know, he has a background in, in negotiations and, you know, he has a long, successful business career. And he's kind of utilizing that in addition to the expertise, the specific area expertise he's receiving about North Korea to kind of implement a coherent strategy that I think protects our national interests and you know, American lives very well. And we saw that when we got we now have three American hostages released. Um, we have allegedly the destruction of a North Korean nuclear site. And, you know, the, he, by kind of removing himself from having to be obligated to that Singapore summit, the president now has leverage, even more leverage against North Korea. And, you know, things are definitely heading in the right direction. We haven't given anything away. You know, this isn't the Obama administration's uh, pallets of cash where we're secretly shipping them billions of dollars to accommodate them. There's, there's no evidence so far that we've given assent to North Korea or that any sanctions have been removed. And, you know, the administration's messaging on this has been excellent. You know, we're not going to, get, you know, step off the gas pedal until we see verifiable results from uh, Pyongyang. And, 
right now, you know, everything's moving in the right direction. So it's very encouraging. You know, um, this guy, Bruce Bechtel, real, uh, real expert on North Korea. I mean, one of the biggest out there. I want to get him on the show. He is professor at Angelo State University. He's written a bunch of books on North Korea. CNN quoted him as saying that Kim miscalculated. Quote, the North Koreans were likely hoping for a step-by-step approach because this is how they have been able to delay implementation of past accords while still drawing benefits from the U.S. and its allies. And he went on to say that Kim and his cohorts have now had to regroup. Um, What I think he means by that, and I think he's spot on, it was always the step-by-step, could you please talk to us? Well, you better give us some, okay, here's some money. Now now can we talk? Well, here's some, you know, we need this. And rather, in this case, Trump even before Bolton, and now certainly bolstered by Bolton, who's the best guy around on North Korea. I don't agree with him on everything in the Middle East, but on North Korea, he's he's the best out there. And um, he was like, no, uh, this is no step-by-step. They basically adopted, and let's go through the timeline. This was on April 29th. Bolton gave an interview, um, I believe it was CBS, and then it was reiterated this week by Pence. Their approach is the CVID approach. Basically, complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization, period. That's what we're doing. So, he's not just being belligerent, I'll blow your face, you know, I'll blow you off the face of the earth. He's saying, look, let's let's make a deal. Let's re- maybe even talk about reunification of the peninsula. Let's sit down and have a summit. There's a lot of opportunities for you. But, oh, you understand, that only means complete denuclearization. Could you talk a little bit about Bolton's comments about the Libya model, how that ties in, and how you think this got derailed? Um, you know, the, the the summit got derailed, and now you know they're uh, even the last twenty four hours. There's a lot of news on this. Yeah, so John Bolton played an integral role in getting Libya, the Libyan regime under Gaddafi. Um, in the early 2000s to denuclearize, and he did this, you know, that's what he calls the Libya model is, you know, complete verification. And importantly, um, America is in charge of oversight, right? So when the Obama administration agreed with Russia to get the chemical weapons out of Syria, they kind of shifted oversight to another country. Mm. And that was the, the chief failure of that, because now we see that Assad, you know, is Still using chemical weapons, and they're very plentiful, and they're still being produced there. Um, what was unique about the Libya situation is that it was a, it was a foreign policy success, which is like amazing. It's something that we've had a foreign policy success in, and you know, in this side of the millennium. And these, you know, the, there's a lot of these political hacks that are trying to tie it to Obama and Hillary's overthrow of Gaddafi and the current chaos in Libya. But when John, just to clarify, when John Bolton talks about the Libya model, he's not talking about regime change or anything like that. He's simply talking about denuclearizing, and it was successful. Um, yeah, and, and therefore regime change was weapon. stupid. Mm-hmm. Regime change was, and, was not good. He, he, he Yeah. So it's, it's pretty ironic to see these Dem, Democrat senators whose president was behind the bad Libya policies. But anyway, that's beside the point. I think John Bolton, you know, he has. A, if you look at even if you search in, you know, his New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, Washington Post op-eds, he's been writing about the the failures of 
North Korea negotiations basically since, um, you know, for decades now, um, since the Clinton presidency, he was warning, you know, don't kick the can down the road, stop giving them money. You know, they're going to come back to the table and pretend to do the same thing every five years. And we've seen that. And now North Korea has a nuclear weapons program. But having Bolton with his historical perspective in there in the Oval Office is just you know, it, 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 it's so important to the president. And you know, it goes to show that, you know, at least through these media reports and that the president really respects Bolton's advice, you know, coming from uh, past administrations, seeing the failures, Bolton has a clear track record of success on this front and, you know, critiquing where we've gone wrong. And he's, he's the right person at the right time for the North Korea issue. And I can tell you from covering domestic policy, it, the personnel is everything in this administration. Just because everything is so fluid, it depends on who's the point man. And and you and I are, you know, I wouldn't say we're among the only, but you know, we're among those on the right that don't buy into Mattis's tough talk. We understand that he's very much a product of the status quo mindset. He's not an innovator for change, and we we're concerned he was going to be the point man. But I think it's very clear one one quality of Trump is he does recognize when someone comes in and they know what he's talking about, and he's like, "Wow, this Bolton guy really knows." And there's been a lot of reports on this that he is very easy access, almost bypassing his chief of staff to get to him. So, I think you're seeing that play out. Um, my, My supposition on what happened was this, that right away when Trump moved military assets into place, he got China to at least initially allow sanctions to go through. Kim Jong was like, holy smokes, this is real. This is a major paradigm shift. So first victory he lets go the um the hostages while agreeing to the summit. So again this is the first time they're the ones giving we didn't give anything and he agrees to talk and we didn't give away anything. I think he figured all right that model doesn't work with Trump. I got to show I'm giving something. But then they figured there's another weakness that Trump is not a weakling. In terms of like being a traitor, like Obama with Iran deal, but he, but once you suck him into this and make it tantalizing, oh my gosh, you could be the man, Mr. Trump, get a Nobel Peace Prize, um, sign a deal that he thought then he can go to what Bruce Bechtel calls the step by step approach, and Bolton comes out and says, no, this is like we said, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization done. Now, they didn't blow it up then. That was a long that was almost a month ago. That was April 29th when he first said that when Bolton first said that. What do you think about this? May 8th is a very significant day. That's the day that um Kim Jong met with Xi, the Chinese uh leader in Beijing. And that's when most analysts seem to think they started turning because the reports are that it wasn't just that Oh, they put out a statement insulting Mike Pence, calling him a dummy. So Trump pulled out. It was that was just the final sign that they weren't they weren't being responsive. It just in basic logistical preparations for the summit, they stopped responding. They um, China is, has been misbehaving, walking back their promises on this. So stuff was going on there. Don't you think it's funny that on May eighth is when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, and basically. Kim Jong sees that no, 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 this is not just talk. He means business. 
he will not deal with anything but upfront categorical denuclearization rather than a step-by-step give and take. Yeah, it is interesting that the, the president did have a few days before the, the deadline to pull out of the Iran deal. So there must have been a specific reason for why he chose that day. And it could definitely coincide and send a signal to North Korea, basically saying, you know, we mean business. And when when China meets with North Korea, you know, they, they're doing it for a very different reason than why we meet with North Korea. Um, China, of course, wants to protect its client situation. And for them, they're not really threatened by North Korea and they want to continue the its isolation because it serves, you know, as a buffer essentially to their to their national defense. So for China, um, it, of course, it's not great for them to have an unstable dictator in the sense that Kim is a little erratic. But for them, I think the calculation is way different, and that's why it's you know it's so impressive that this administration. Um, we have the South Koreans who have no interest in a maximum pressure campaign. They're all about reunification at any cost. And then you have China, who doesn't, of course, have our interest in mind either. And then you had the mainstream media that was um, labeling the president as someone who was obsessed with the peace prize. So I think you're right that it sent the signal to Kim Jong-un that he had more leverage than he actually thought he had. And it, it turns out that everything has basically backfired on him. Uh, if the president were truly interested in a Nobel Peace Prize, of course he would go through the, the nonsense, uh, you know, the, the photo op on June 12th. But he, you know, he obviously, by writing that letter to Kim, he's not so much committed to to glory. You know, every president has a certain amount of egoism in their policy, but you know, this president, he's proven that you know he'll he'll stand by his word, and he does have the right. Um, the, the, the right calculation for what is in our national interest. And it's not about him. You know, it's about protecting American sovereignty and security. You know, back in August, when this was really boiling over, he was shooting a lot of rockets um, closer to Japan than ever before, threatening Guam. Um, I wrote an article saying, stop paying the ransom. Uh, seven different things we could do. And the first thing was change a posture. That this is all about deterring. Everything that that's what peace through strength is. I have the ability, I have the tools, and I will use them, and I will not pay the ransom. And you know, you know, this works with everything. I believe it works with politically with the Democrats. Um, I wish Trump would be as good as he is with North Korea when it comes to Democrats. I will not sign your bills. I will veto them um, rather than you know signing their jailbreak bills, signing their budget bills, and then not getting anything in, in return. It works at the border. Just the persona of Trump. Led to a three, the lowest um, level of border crossings in three decades. Uh, but then, you know, we started talking about DACA and the courts did their thing and the catch and release continued and they started. And now, now there's another border search. Incentives and disincentives and posture and deterrence really, really work. So I'm seeing here that Trump was the first one, didn't pay the ransom. And then. You know, it was it, it was always Trump's always one step ahead rather than usually it's we're one step behind. Um, what I'm what I'm told is that Bolton told the president that if they are putting out a statement calling Pence a dummy, 
and again, the whole lead up the last couple of weeks when China and North Korea were acting very funny behind the scenes, he said, they're, they're going to humiliate you. They're going to be the ones pulling out, and you're going to look like you're groveling. And that's when Trump said, screw it. He went first and pulled out. And then, guess what? Last Late last night, um, North Korea put out another statement. No, 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 we, we want to negotiate. And then Trump again, okay, um, I hope this works out. You know, even some of my friends were like, what's with this summit stuff? Don't sit down with the guy. I'm like, I don't have a problem with that as an end to itself. It's a matter of who's the one driving. It, it looks like he's the one always driving in this case, and Kim is the one responding. Yeah, yeah. Again, it comes down to, as we talked about, you know, with the domestic and foreign issues, it all comes down to personnel being policy and John Bolton really having a sense of the North Koreans, along with his advisors and along with you know, some good people in the Pentagon, understanding the behavior of North Korea. And I think you saw this when the, when the president was able to get concessions from them. He actually leveraged this past behavior. Um, we basically you know, talked to the North Koreans and said, listen, you guys have a history of deception. We're going to need some proof before we start negotiations. So right from there, you, know, you could see that the, the president had a coherent strategy and um, as for the summit on June 12th, you know, I think it still may happen. We've seen comments from General Mattis today saying that the diplomats are still discussing it. Um, but you're right. It did look like that, um, that the North Koreans were potentially going to pull out. Uh, I think some so top White House officials said they, they went as far when, they, when the Kim Jong-un regime was meeting with China. They stopped answering the phones when the U.S. diplomats were calling. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were, they were, there were some troubling signals coming that they were going to potentially, you know, leverage the June twelfth date to try to garner concessions. But of course, uh, you know, the president has basically flipped the script here. Now they've come back with a very nice statement, and uh, of course, now they're answering the phones again too. So right, I think we'll see. It's probably fifty-fifty. Who knows what can happen? But the president certainly has shown that he's not a hundred percent committed to it, and that the meeting can be off the table at any time. And the thing is, I've been very offended seeing some, you know, commentators on the right comparing certain things Trump has done in the past to Reagan that I didn't agree with. Um, but this, I think, is very Reagan-esque because, again, you don't have to categorically um, reject diplomacy and, and summits. No, you use that as a tool. But I love it. He came back with a statement. Oh, okay, no, well, that, that's fine. I hope it works out. Just very kind of balanced. Oh, but. Making it very clear, there will be denuclearization. <laughs> Meaning, it, it's our goals are clear. Um, hey, you want to meet? Okay, I, no, no problem. I mean, I really like what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing any weakness there. <laughs> Again, hopefully it doesn't change. But you know, Pompeo's good. Bolton's good on this. Um, I, I'm really very confident. What would you do at this point? At this juncture? to up the pressure on China. It, it really seems like, if you look at the timeline, Xi is pulling all the strings. I mean, because, it, you know, let's face it, if China wants to, they don't really want to, but let's say they wanted to enforce the international sanctions, North Korea is a, a toilet hole. I mean, there's nothing going on there. Yeah, so we have to find some way to change China's calculation. And uh, it, it, it's, it's a difficult situation because, if we think that we're going to get something done with North Korea without China being involved, I think you and I agree that's that's like a total dream, and that's just not going to happen. China's got to be at least somewhat on, at least understanding of U.S. policy, uh, because in, they're so essential to 
our trade relationship and you know the US consumer benefits greatly from from trade with China so we can't you know go on the war path against China I don't think that a trade war or anything like that over North Korea would be beneficial to anyone in the United States but if we can get the Chinese to change their consensus over denuclearization because they, I don't think they want to see denuclearization and their support for Kim Jong-un isn't going to change. So that's a non-starter. But, you know, perhaps we can start with rolling back the North Korean nuclear program and going from there. No, absolutely. And, and I, I also think we do need to put the screws to China. Um, not yeah, you're right. I, I agree with you. Like why, you know, can punish uh, uh, not just consumers, but also producers with 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 the trade war. I'm more for just militarily. I think we need to be moving around more assets there. I think we need to make some overtures to Taiwan. Um, yeah, I, I totally yeah. agree. Especially in the South China Sea, the Chinese are are all over the place, and they're sending nuclear carriers there. They they mean business, and now is definitely the time that we uh, stand by our allies. And you know, Taiwan is small but very powerful, and the same goes with South Korea and Japan. You know, these are. They have serious militaries, and they can certainly be a deterrent to China. You know, if we stand by our partners there. Yep. I mean, I mean, this is what the this is what they don't understand. This is what the media and the political class don't understand. Well, you want war? Uh, they, they don't. They don't understand. This is Reagan's peace through strength agenda. You use them seamlessly. It's not like either or. Oh, so now we're friends. Well, no, 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 no. While you're discussing a summit, you start moving more missile defense assets. You start publicly saber saber rattling with testing. You don't declare war or anything. You you again. I think also not just on the North Korean side, but on the Chinese side with Taiwan. Start cutting deals with Taiwan, and then like, hey, you know about the summit there, and and that that's what Reagan did, and and that was the amazing thing. You look at his presidency; there really wasn't any large scale war. You had the big mistake with with Lebanon, obviously, with um, the Marine barracks there. We shouldn't have been involved. But again, you know, Reagan's big fight was was the evil empire, and he succeeded. Terrorism, Islamic terrorism, that was just starting around then, and you know, he couldn't have his attention on two things at once. So that was good. Um, you know, with Granada, we had a couple of small scale things here. We never really had it because that's what peace through strength is. Um, I would argue back to the Libya model. Um, now I don't the Iraq War. I think you and I both know by now it's it was a colossal mistake be, because of everything else. But with the one thing it did at the time, it was that was an example of oh my gosh, they mean business in enforcing agreements. That's what got Gaddafi um, to come clean. So I think a similar thing here with the Iran deal pulling out worked very well. Um, I, I just I'm just looking for more. I just think we need a little bit more of the stick to ensure that the carrots are meaningful. Um, I saw, I don't know if you saw this, the NDAA passed this week, the Defense Authorization Bill. There's a lot of things that it didn't address that I'm very disappointed in. But one thing that I did see is that it, um, where is this? It had a provision calling for the creation by the Missile Defense Agency of these interceptors at the base, um, the the boost phase, boost phase interceptors. So basically, it seems like the most devastating form of missile defense to your enemy is to be able to take it out at the boost phase before it reaches the atmosphere. Um, 
you know, that it's the most accurate. It's also, it will send the debris back on them. <laughs> so it's a really good deterrent in, in that yeah, sense. And, and, it's, and, it, and it's argued that, you know, these countries that are building nuclear weapon systems like North Korea and Iran, that will be the best way to take out their more, I don't want to say more primitive nuclear weapons, but not as advanced as, say, China's or Pakistan's or Russia's. That, you know, it's the best way to, you know, fund a defense program to stop those type of nuclear threats, too. And, you know, it's always good to see serious dollars allocated towards actual military expenditures and, you know, not... uh, bridges in Afghanistan and stuff like that. So it's always encouraging to see that stuff. No, no, that, that's the thing. But I, I think, look, that's going to take several years to develop. Obviously, the whole – the big thing with that is um, the sensors, the system – meaning how do you – I think conceptually we can knock it down now. The problem is the ability to have the notification and monitoring so that the time from, from you, you see a launch heating up to – Actually, being able to intercept before it reaches the atmosphere is is a very small window. So it's it's more of a logistical problem. So it's it's dealing with aerial assets and and sensors and stuff above my pay grade. But I, I would love to see Trump host some sort of a event with um, Shinto. What's his name? The Japanese president to. You know, because the South Korean leadership is kind of funny, uh, but but I think that's a that's a good ally there. And 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 now, now again, I wouldn't do that today. I, I kind of wait to see how this plays out. Now, obviously, if Kim Jong reverts back to where he was last August, if he fires another missile, then I think we need to do these things, start moving military assets in there and, and restarting it. Um, but he hasn't done that. It's pretty interesting that he hasn't – I mean, why do you think he hasn't done it? Do, do you think that he ultimately thinks Trump's going to blow him up? Yeah, for one, it could be a waste of money because if he doesn't believe that the Trump – you know, they have a tight budget there, obviously, when the people are eating ants and uh, there's a lot of – you know, there's mass starvation. And even when you saw that defector um, who, who crossed the border to South Korea, even the military is, is underfed, which, which is a sign that the economy is really bad. Um, but they, uh, I think they've possibly made the calculation that, you know, the Trump administration is not going to put up with this. And, you know, the, the missile tests, of course, advance the nuclear program. But I think the chief reason was um, to try to get concessions out of the West and out of South Korea. And it worked every time until until this moment. You know, the Obama administration, on one of his last days in office, signed off on an aid package to North Korea, um, so supposedly humanitarian. But... We all know where it goes. Uh, so maybe there's the potential that they don't think it's going to work anymore. Um, of course, they can they can try it uh, because, you know, the Trump administration is only one entity, even though the U.S. is you know, viewed as the, the, you know, also as the great Satan in North Korea. But they also could potentially restart their program. Like, I'm not saying it's, it's guaranteed that they're going to stop doing this, but I think they've calculated that the Americans aren't going to... Uh, aren't going to buy into this saber rattling anymore. The bottom line is sanctions work. I mean, <laughs> isn't that what we're seeing both from Iran and North Korea? Um, you know, it, it, it works on these type of countries. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, the, the Iranian currency, there are, you know, the rile is spinning out of control. And, um, you know, it has, we, we hate to see humanitarian crises, but it, but it also, you know, you have to remind, remember, has the effect of, um, 
you know, making these regimes deeply unpopular when, you know, they're mm. it, ultimately the blame is on them for for putting themselves in a situation where the U.S. feels that it needs to stop the threat. And therefore, you know, sometimes it goes it comes down to hurting the citizens of that un, their own country. But, you know, it's certainly not our fault that we're being threatened with nuclear weapons and have to respond. Right. So uh, ultimately it, it creates internal chaos as well when these uh, when the sanctions are you know unfolding and and all that and that's ultimately how we honor the sacrifice of you know the hundreds of thousands of of dead americans since the revolutionary war um that made the ultimate sacrifice by by pledging to go forward to ensure that a it, you know the the use of power the use of military force only has to be used sparingly and b when it's used it's it's used only for our interests that is the only choice that is the right choice it's the right tool to combat that given threat and indeed it is a threat and um you do it just you know without any reservation and you end it as quickly as possible but this is really how you preempt that peace through strength we got to have the right tools um, which is why, like I always say, you got to support Dynatrap Flylight. If you got flies or mosquitoes in your home, you're not going to run around with a baseball bat to chase them uh, to try to kill every fly in your home. Like we're not going to kill every Al Qaeda guy dancing around with an AK 47 in 50 Muslim countries. What you do is you have the right tools. It's soft power. In this case, the soft power is Dynatrap indoor flylight. They will go to the light. You don't have to go to them. They'll go to the light. You will not have any bugs in your home. I'm telling you, it works. It's a really good product. Dynatrap.com, D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Promo code Daniel, 15% off. Dynatrap, the safe, silent, and simple solution to household insect control. Speaking of insect control, oh, yes, I compare it to animals. Erdogan, our buddy in Turkey, our ally. Um, Yeah, so... Um, you know, again, speaking of Memorial Day on 1982 in his famous uh, Memorial Day speech at Arlington Cemetery, um, Reagan spoke about our goal is peace. We can gain that peace by strengthening our alliances, by speaking candidly of the dangers before us, by assuring potential adversaries of our seriousness, by actively pursuing every chance of honest, fruitful negotiation. I think, and that's our goal here, seeing, okay, what's a right ally? What's an enemy? What's soft power? You know, Where is soft power appropriate? Where is hard power appropriate? Um, and, and, and that's how you ensure that the, the least amount of people die, and certainly we have to put our people first. Turkey, we, they're an ally. They're not an ally. What is going on with us giving them F-35s? Yeah, so there are there are forces in the Pentagon that believe we are still living in a, in a world where Turkey is very much a secular, uh, very post Ottoman uh, society, and it's not an Islamic dictatorship that it is becoming. Um, it's unfortunate that the that they want to sell F 35s and you know they've they're they've basically gone through with the sale. Um, the only thing that could potentially be stopping it is U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. There's a couple of bipartisan bills. In addition to the NDAA amendment from Senator Gene Shaheen and Tom Tillis, 
which would basically remove the F-35 program. But unfortunately, that amendment is tied to the detention of Pastor uh, Andrew Brunson, who's being held hostage there. Mm. Uh, so Turkey's using the pastor as a negotiating chip. Um, and I think the Senate, the NDAA has this wrong, because I think even if they do release the pastor, I still don't think that we should sell them, you know, the most advanced fighter jets well, Wait a minute. Could, could you explain to our audience, uh, is it true that we have never even used F-35s and Israel is the first nation to have used and just use them in Syria? So this is a good example of how bloated our Pentagon and the contracting system has become. The F-35 program uh, was tremendously expensive, right? It went like 10 times over budget, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, years past due. Um, and there's been all kinds of problems getting them off the ground in the United States. Uh, interestingly, uh, months after Israel has received its shipment of the F-35s that it bought, it has um, configured them in, in a way um, that's unique to you know, Israeli operations, and they've already been flying missions with the F-35s. So it goes to show that they really have their defense industry in much better order than we do, unfortunately. We still have all kinds of programs with the F-35s. I don't believe they've ever been flown in missions outside or in operational missions anywhere um, outside of the United States or even inside of the United States. Um, we're still testing them. We st- we've only delivered them, I believe, fully to uh, the na- – I forgot what, which branch of the military it was, but there's only one branch of the military that's received its full order of F-35s. And the F-35 is the perfect example of a bloated, out-of-control, unaudited Pentagon that has an unlimited budget year after year. It's really – these no-bid contracts are really harming our defense industry and allowing for our great adversaries in China, um, in Russia, to really catch up to us on the on the qualitative level, which is wow. alarming for you know our hegemonic position in the world. Wow! But we're giving them to Turkey. I mean, <laughs> that's what I don't get. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. Uh, Turkey is only a NATO ally in name at this point. Today, they had a news report out. They, they were threatening the United States <laughs> that they basically said that if we don't if you don't give us the f-35s there there's no chance that you know this pastor of yours is ever going to get released so they're basically admitting that he's he's a hostage and you know they, the, the, the Turkish government you know there's many secular good people in Turkey but the government is is, is a bunch of you're right insects and they 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 despise the United States and take advantage of us and I'd like to see some of the you know, the president's good policies on the Iran deal in North Korea kind of make its way over to yes, Turkey. Yes, yes. I mean, that that's what we've been trying to do the last couple of weeks here on Foreign Policy Friday. The Middle East, what I've noticed is something that's multidimensional and more complex. That's where Trump starts having issues. Um, like, he looks, ISIS, let's kill it. And we're like, well, yeah, but you got to look at the whole interplay um, when it's the Bloods and the Crips, it's a little bit different. you got to watch out what you're doing, what you're doing in Yemen, what you're doing in, in, in Syria and Iraq. Whereas North Korea is kind of a standalone. Now, they are tied in. They do obviously do business with Iran. But you know he seems to have a lot of clarity on that. And this is the problem with the Middle East, that um, I don't think there's enough people with the Bolton North Korea equivalent of clarity and strategy on the Middle East. And that's what we're, we're still seeking to 
to analyze and promote. Um, I know you got to go soon. Just want to touch on one other thing. There's, gosh, there's so much going on. We'll have to save for next week. Um, I'm, I'm reading in Somalia, and and this really, I don't know, th- th- this really hurts me thinking of Memorial Day. Um, you know, th- there's no good way of coming to a family member who's who lost a loved one um, in combat because, you know, usually they're cut down pretty young in, in, in age, and this has been going on since all the wars we've had. But, but you know, there's one thing when, you know, you lost a loved one in, in – uh, you know, taking Omaha Beach, or taking taking uh, one of the islands in the final stages of the war, with Japan. You understood we we couldn't let that go on. They attacked us. We, we did everything we can, full force, all the tools. And you know, it's 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 terribly sad all the people that died. But you know, you, you could see the result. We're losing soldiers intermittently in Somalia. I don't know what the heck we're doing there. But it's bad enough to get involved in fighting for the Somali army, which I don't know what that is, on behalf of another Sunni group when there's no outcome, there's no ground to be held, there's no interest. And then meanwhile, we import 140,000 Somalis to our country, and then they fund the terror to al-Shabaab overseas. So again, talking about our Dynatrap uh, analogy, um, it's the terror financing, it's immigration, it, I mean, it's FBI. That Those are your tools. It's not... You know, using military in Somalia has nothing, nothing to do with anything. But what's even worse is that I'm reading here, Long War Journal, um, Alexander Gutowski, May, 20, May 23rd, U.S. military reviews possible civilian casualties in Yemen and Somalia. And, and there's already been times that they put our troops on the hook there. So we go in there when we shouldn't be in there, and then we put our troops in, in the worst situations – I mean, you imagine being sent to Somalia. Um, I mean, especially in light of what happened in '93, and um, and then even when they do their job, which is not towards any definitive mission, we're worried about civilian casualties. So, so don't go. I mean, how how much longer are we going to do this? This just really bothers me. Yeah, and Memorial Day is like the perfect time, I think, to talk about. The, it's, it's the sacrifice that the American soldiers make, um, you know, fighting for freedom, fighting for the defense of our country. But as you said uh, perfectly, you know, it's important that we don't make unnecessary sacrifices, too. Uh, I think you, you say this a lot, but we'd rather have a guy dying for their country than someone dying for ours in, in, the, in this fight against exactly. our, our enemies. Um, overseas, and you know, it, it, whether it's Somalia or whether it's it, you know our troops getting ambushed in Niger by a bunch of uh, rogue jihadis with AK-47s, you know this stuff should not happen. Our troops shouldn't be put in a position that aren't where there's no clear strategic goal um, where their lives are at stake. You know our troops' lives are are, are too important to send them off to Somalia to fight for some, uh, who even, I don't even know what they're, what, what's going on, uh, what, what exact, what kind of government they're trying to support in a stateless society. It's, just, it's quite unclear, but um, we really need to prioritize the lives of our troops. If there's anything we can learn from Memorial Day and the lives lost, it's that, you know, our, our troops take importance over, over anything else. That's what it is. I, I, I want to end with this, um, a quote from Coolidge. I just want to introduce it by noting that, you know, you and I follow Israel pretty closely. You spent some time there. 
um, and, and really followed closely. And w- something struck me 12 years ago during the Lebanese war um, with Israel, the second war, I guess you could call it. I was reading a story about um, this Israeli soldier from a village in Samaria. So, you know, he's living at the front lines, dealing with the Arab terrorists there, uh, you know, fighting in some olive grove in 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 Lebanon, very tough terrain, uh, partly because Condoleezza Rice was around there and he prevented them from doing what it takes. So they had to really do everything very surgically and endanger the lives of their soldiers. And I saw, you know, this, they were just talking about this guy. He, he had jumped on a grenade that was fired into uh, a group of maybe five, six of them. And he gave his life for his, his comrades. And I was, I, was, I was just thinking to myself, it's just a really unsettling thought about, our soldiers here at home that, you know, at least in Israel, you see like they're dying for their country. It was, it was tough, but it's right on their border. They are firing rockets into Israel. I mean, you know what you're dying for. Um, and in the past, basically through world war two, that was very clear in America as well, but it, it, we've had so many problems with this and, and we, we need a clear direction. And, and, and that's why I want to end today. And th- thanks for joining us, Jordan. Um, have a great Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge, when he was vice president, he gave a lot of great speeches when he was president, but as vice president of Massachusetts on Memorial Day, which used to be called Decoration Day, I think even back in the 20s, certainly in 1868 when it was uh, introduced, our country does not want war, it wants peace. It has not decreed this memorial season as an honor to war with its terrible waste and attendant train of suffering and hardship, which reaches onward into the years of peace. Yet, war is not the worst of evils. War is not the worst of evils. And these days have been set apart to do honor to all those now gone who made the cause of America their supreme choice. Some fell with the word of Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, almost ringing in their ears. Some heard that word across the intervening generations and were still obedient to its call. It is to that spirit of those men exhibited in all our wars, to the spirit that places the devotion of freedom and truth above the devotion of life, that the nation pays its ever-enduring mark of reverence and respect. It is not that principle that leads to conflict. But to tranquility, it is not that principle which is the cause of war, but the only foundation for an enduring peace. There can be no peace with the forces of evil. Peace comes only through the establishment of the supremacy of the forces of good. That way lies only through sacrifice, Um, but sacrifice, but using it appropriately indeed. Thank you all for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. Hope you have a meaningful Memorial Day. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 